Well, you know, if you've been around Evergreen, you are in for a great treat today. Dr. Richard Shaw is our guest today. It's hard to call him a guest speaker because he's a great friend of Evergreen. He's been here many times. Dr. Shaw earned his doctorate in marriage and family therapy from Fuller Seminary. He has, for uh, the last nearly 20 years, been a professor at George Fox University until uh, just a few months ago, by his own choice, he served as the chair of the Graduate School of Counseling at George Fox. Dr. Shaw also has a private practice, and uh, a few of us have been there, and uh, my, uh, his clients include me. Now, Richard, I don't know if that's a help to you or not to further your professional credentials by letting people know that you're my counselor. Uh, he's still working on it, and don't hold me against him, okay, today, just... Don't do that. I take my car in once in a while to the dealership to have it uh, tuned up because I'm cheap and I plan to drive that car a long time. It makes sense to do a little preventative maintenance. It dawned on me one day that I'm stuck with my soul. I'm not going to trade it in when it, goes, uh, when it blows up. Maybe a little preventative maintenance might make some sense from time to time. So I go to Dr. Shaw's office for my annual tune-up, and he always has something to work on. I can never, never figure that out. Dr. Shaw is also an ordained Foursquare minister, and he and Karen, who is here today, also are a vibrant part of the leadership at our sister church in West Lynn, South Lake Foursquare Church. Dr. Shaw did his doctoral research about shame and grace. We invited him to come today and share with us. Would you give a warm, evergreen welcome to Dr. Richard Shaw? Well, good morning. If you, if I can't do something with that setup, then I, I am not worth my salt in any way. And not just from Jared and Ann and blessings to you and thank you, but this whole place, this so exciting to worship with you and feel the energy in the room and the more than reasonably nice folk in the room. It's such a, uh, just honestly, it's really, really inviting to be here and it does feel like, although I know I'm not here on a, you don't see me on a regular basis, but this feels like kind of our second home, uh, church home, when we get a chance to be at Evergreen and worship with you. It's, I, I joke uh, earlier this morning with some folk, you know, we all live in the Portland metro area, but could, you, could Wilsonville be further away from Hillsboro? <laughs> My gosh, right? It's like, gee whiz, it feels like, it's like we're in the same general area, but it, uh, it just takes a bit to get there from here. So, uh, but it's a pleasure to sit with you uh, this morning, to stand with you and have a chance to talk a little bit about something that's really important to me, this idea of shame and grace and how that plays out for us. The only thing I add to that wonderful and more than kind definition is my, my roots. Uh, uh, I'm from Nebraska originally, and every once in a while I'll run into somebody who at least has been either through or flown over <laughs> Nebraska. There's not a lot of reason to stop in Nebraska unless you're from there, and I am. A small town called Napanee, Nebraska, population 160. And shrinking, by the way. It's, we left, so it got smaller, you know. So uh, I grew up in small town Nebraska, right on the Kansas-Nebraska border. My dad was a Wesleyan minister for over 30 years, retired at this point, and a third-generation farmer. And so I came by uh, 
um, my roots with Christ and hard work on the farm very naturally. That was a part of the background. And then God has been more than gracious to give uh, amazing opportunities of a journey uh, along the way in that process that ended us up at George Fox University and in the Portland metro area in 1995. And we've been here ever since. And that's my full-time gig is teaching over at George Fox. And then as Jared said, I do a number of other things. And again, just had um, unbelievable opportunities and and uh, God is so good in regards to that. And Karen is with me today. Thank you, honey, for being with us. And we're going to be with you next Saturday, uh, providing a shame no more seminar. So I, I definitely hope that you'll consider that because that is definitely something that's really close and near to my heart to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, hopefully kind of wet your whistle a little bit, give you a little taste of God's grace, and then we'll unpack that even more so next Saturday as we spend the day having some conversation about that. So shame no more, living with truth and grace in all our relationships. And in just a minute, we're going to look at Matthew 19. But I came across an article, and I, I, I can almost quote this article. I've done it so many times, but it just I haven't found anything better to help us talk and think a little bit about embarrassment and the, and the ways that many of us can relate to before we get to the heavier stuff this morning. So this article starts off like this. It says, Mark Twain once said, man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. And embarrassment is a powerful emotion from which no person in any culture is immune. And while there are no recorded deaths, many people caught in the unblinking stare of a mortifying moment have often wished for a quick and merciful end. Take, for example, the very proper British career diplomat who stood up to give a speech and noticed that his fly was open. He quickly sat back down and yanked the zipper shut, but in doing so, he jammed his silk tie between the steel teeth of his zipper. When he stood back up, he tightened his own tie around his own neck. He started making gasping and wheezing noises. People thought he was having a heart attack. Eventually, his host cut the tie with a pair of scissors, but by now, all eyes were transfixed on the scene. Thoroughly flustered, the diplomat ran from the room with a short piece of necktie flapping from his fly and a stubby bit of tie dangling from his collar. Within hours, the entire diplomatic community heard the tie and zipper story. And from that point on, wherever he was on official business, people just gazed at his fly and chuckled. How would you like to live with that? Sources of embarrassment are everywhere. Open flies are a notorious indignity. Speakers lose their place in speeches. Food become attached to our smiles. Toilet paper trail from our shoes. Our dentures slip. Our toupees slide. Don't tell your neighbor, okay, about your... Your, your, your toupee there. Tongues constantly betray their owners. Think of the Oxford Reverend that stood at a royal occasion to offer a toast to Queen Victoria and said, let us drink to the queer old dean. <laughs> In everyday life, we lesser mortals are usually embarrassed anytime we look foolish or incompetent in some way in public. And whatever the source, embarrassment can stop you in your tracks. Well, I hope I've wet your whistle about this idea of embarrassment and, and the challenge of that. And I'm just going to tell you that any time that there's a failure, that you blow it in some way, 
Anytime that happens quickly and suddenly so that you can't repeat it or change it or save it in some way, anytime that happens in front of public, and lastly, when you care what the public thinks, there is all kinds of potential for embarrassment. So I am a professor after all. You didn't know you were going to get a test today, but here's a pop quiz. Right now, who is at the greatest potential for embarrassing themselves? That would be correct. You all pass, okay? That would be me or anybody else today up on the stage, right? So I'm an extrovert. That means I talk and I say things before I think about them. So the opportunity that something comes out here before it completely did everything it needed to here is fully in place. Uh, I talk kind of quickly, although if you think I talk fast, you should talk to my wife. So suddenly, fast, that happens. You are my public, and even though you may or may not know it, I care deeply what you think about how things go today. But you know what? I care more deeply that we make a connection with Jesus Christ today because he's here, and he cares about us in powerful and meaningful ways beyond those places of embarrassment and silliness and about the more important matters of the heart. Well, I hope you're thinking about your own embarrassing moments. I have so many I could fill up the page, but I'll share just one to make sure I even the playing field and hopefully then don't add to it this morning up here on the stage. But one summer, uh, a few years ago, I painted or had my my house painted twice. And this was a source of embarrassment for both my wife and I, and and that will make much more sense as I unpack this story. I live in Wilsonville in a nice little subdivision, and we have a a housing group. They kind of check things out. Make sure you mow your lawn a little bit. Make sure your house looks nice. Make sure you put your trash cans where they're supposed to be. And let's just say coming from Napanee, Nebraska, that's not what I'm used to, okay? So... I'm not, a, I'm not a bad tenant. I just am not used to, you know, kind of making sure I follow all these rules and, and regulations. So one summer, we were thinking about painting our house. And we had driven past in another subdivision this beautiful house. And it was kind of cedar and wood, and it was kind of this deep oil stain. And it kind of had a burnt orange feel to it. But then there were tans and browns and blacks and beautiful rock out front. And we're like, if we ever paint our house, I want my house to look like that house. Well, so we went and bought the paint, but you know, we bought paint instead of stain and we have like, I don't know what they call it, hardy plank board. We don't really have like cedar, you know, nice stuff. And we kind of have some brick. We don't really have any stones out front. And it just wasn't quite the same. And you know, you get that little tester of orange paint and you put the little two by two inch, you know, thing on the front and you're like, yeah, I think it's going to look great. So then we bought like 40 gallons of it and hired painters. And if you had this done, I left at eight o'clock in the morning. I get home at five. It's done. How do they do that? They came in a day and painted everything. And I pulled up to my house and I went, oh no. Oh, this is not good. Now, we're Nebraska Cornhusker fans, so this is not a duck or beaver thing, but everybody thought we were beaver believers. 
okay? We had the orangest house in the neighborhood. And I just went, oh, no. Within weeks, we hear a knock at our door. And it's the local representative of the housing association. And they're saying, um, there have been complaints about the color of your house. And you kind of didn't get approval for the color before you painted it. And you're supposed to do that. And we're like, we know, we're sorry, we'll redo it. So we went back to Sherwin-Williams and bought the brownest brown paint that you can imagine, repainted the house, and got the housing association off our back. But that was an embarrassing and expensive learning process uh, as our house now has two very good coats of paint on it. So it is sealed up really nicely. So anyway, okay, let's look at some scripture. We're going to read Matthew 19, and I want you to have in mind embarrassment. That's kind of fun. It's kind of silly. But then we're going to talk for a minute about guilt, and that has to do with our conscience, about correction, about our morality. And then most importantly, we're going to really talk about sin and shame. And shame, as I'm going to tell you in a few minutes, is this deeper place inside of us where we're never quite enough. That's what it feels like, never enough in relationship to God. Never enough in relationship to maybe our family or our relationships. Never enough at church. And this place of identity that feels like I just am not enough in some way. And many folk, including myself, relate to this picture. But the good news is is that God's got something to say about that today. So let's read. And I'm going to walk you through Matthew 19 and make a few comments along the way. One day, children were brought to Jesus in the hope that he would lay hands on them and pray over them. The disciples shooed them off, but Jesus intervened. Let the children alone. Don't prevent them from coming to me. God's kingdom is made up of people like these. And after laying hands on them, he left. Now, you probably know, but in Christ's time, women and children were just about property, right? They were just hardly a step above property. And so I'm sure that the men who were leaders here around Christ were clearly keeping women and children away from Jesus in a way of saying, hey, there's important stuff going on here, and the last thing we need is any kids around here to get in the way. Now, I don't know this. This is what happens in my mind when I read this scripture, but I kind of have this sense. Now, we know that Jesus didn't shoo them off, and he said, let the children come to me. But I kind of think that there were times in Jesus' ministry when he got really tired of adults, and he got really tired of meetings And he got tired of men. And there were probably times when he was saying, can you shoo the adults away and let the children come and be with me? Because they don't like require stuff of me. And they don't ask me all these tricky questions where they're trying to manipulate and get me to trip over my own words and go against the law and all this challenging stuff. So I kind of have this feeling that this moment here is a respite time almost for Jesus. The innocence, the beauty. What a great moment today to see Uh, the baptism uh, of a young man and have that experience in front of us and how meaningful that is. You know, that might have been worth the whole thing of coming today. That might have been the most important thing that happened all morning was that we got to participate in that moment today, especially with a child. Well, the scripture goes on. Another day, a man stopped Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, this is a good question. It's a valid question. In fact, 
at one point or another, probably every one of us has or will ask this question about how do we deal with eternal things. That's a good question. And yet, there's some nuance in here that is, what good thing must I do to earn eternal life? And ultimately, that's what I want you to see is, because this is not about me doing a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about me being able to earn something with Christ because ultimately it's all about God's love and acceptance and grace. But that's where we start. And so I think Jesus knew this perfectly and he continued and he worked with this gentleman around this and he said, why do you question me about what's good? God is the only one who is good. If you want to enter the life of God, just do what he tells you. The man asked, what in particular? Again, Good question. I think there's more going on maybe than we see completely here. You know, I've been a professor for 20 years, and I can't help but bring my own thoughts to this particular place. And so um, I'll have a syllabus the first day of class. I will spend time going over every assignment and all the expectations of class. And I'll talk about a paper maybe that's going to be due at the end of the semester. And and inevitably, um, I'll have students who, uh, well-meaning, Uh, will ask me question after question after question after clarifying question. So that's an eight-page paper, uh, Dr. Shaw. What happens if it's seven and two-thirds page paper? Is that going to be a problem? Or what if I get a little long-winded and it's a nine-page paper? Are you going to take points away if I do that? No, no, it's seven and two-thirds to nine and a quarter pages (laughs) will be just fine. That's okay. And now, I notice you want a 12-point font on that paper. Now, I kind of like an 11-point font on mine, and I'm kind of a courier guy. Are you in the, uh, You know, it's fine. Whatever font you want to use, as long as it's not this big on the page, it's okay. I don't... And sometimes, I, you know, we have those experiences where we're trying to get, like, the right answers or this preciseness, and I think there might have been some of that going on here where... Christ is wanting to tell this guy that he needs to get in right alignment with God. And this guy's looking for the list of do's and don'ts. But again, I think Jesus said, okay, I'll play your game. Let's go ahead and do the list of do's and don'ts. And let's talk about that. So he says, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as you do yourself. Now, do you recognize that list? Right? It's part of the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm a counselor, not a, not a math person, but I, I think, wait a minute, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as you do yourself. So that's six of the Ten Commandments. Okay, hmm, wonder what's going on with that. Why didn't he just list all ten of them? Well, let's, let's stay tuned and keep talking just a minute. The young man said, I've done all that. What's left? <laughs> okay. Okay, Um, so you have right and perfect relationship with everybody in your world and life. And you might remember that not too long before this, Christ, uh, if I remember correctly, you can correct me, it's in there, I know, somewhere. The Sermon on the Mount that talked about, you know what, you've heard, don't murder. But I say, if you have hate in your heart, you've murdered. So the picture here of, yeah, you might not have done these specific items, but... God's always more concerned about the heart than he is just the action on the outside. And so, again, even though Jesus said, all right, let's go ahead and give you a pass. Let's assume that you have these all perfectly, which, again, it's not really possible. But let's just give you that. Let's go one more. And he says, if you want to give it all you've got, Jesus replied, go and sell your possessions. Give everything to the poor. All your wealth will then be in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, I, I think 
that what Jesus did in that statement was he took the other four commandments and he rolled them all into one and said, here's the Ten Commandments. They're made up of relationship stuff between you and me and relationship stuff between us and God. And even if you're putting everything in right relationship here on earth in your relationships, there's one more thing that you need to deal with, and that's your relationship with God the Father. It's the same story for us. That's why this material on shame and grace for me is all about the key relationships in our life. It's about the human relationships that we all deal with. But ultimately, it's about the sin and shame that we need to deal with in the one major relationship between us and God. That was the last thing the young man expected to hear. And so crestfallen, he walked away. He was holding on tight to a lot of things, and he couldn't bear to let him go. As he watched him go, Jesus told his disciples, Do you have any idea how difficult it is for the rich to enter God's kingdom? He just blew the socks off of the disciples because everybody knows in this culture that if you are wealthy, that is a sign that you are blessed by God. The bigger your house, the more acreage you have, the more animals you have, the more servants you have, it's obvious that you're in right relationship with God because God has blessed you. So when Jesus said this, he blew the disciples away. And that's exactly what the scripture says. Look at this. He says, um, that was a, um, as he watched him go, Jesus told the disciples, do you have any idea how difficult it is for the rich to enter God's kingdom? Let me tell you, it's easier to gallop a camel through a needle's eye than for the rich to enter God's kingdom. The disciples were staggered. And then they said, then who has any chance at all? If the rich people don't have God's blessing and they're not in right relationship with God, I think they were saying, we gave up everything to follow you, Jesus. And we didn't, we didn't have a lot, but what we had, we gave up and we've been following you. And we're here, but we don't have much. And we're kind of afraid now because we've been trying and we've been following and we've been in. But are we going to make Eternal life? What happens to us after this life is over? Jesus looked hard at them and said, No chance at all if you think you can pull it off yourself. Every chance in the world if you trust God to do it. The disciples got the, the teaching at the end that the gentleman at the front end asked about, which is it's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about legalism. It's not about me being able to do something to earn right relationship with Christ. At the end of the day, it's all about us putting our trust in God and believing that he will do that work in us. Not that I can do something to earn that place. The number one obstacle in the building of our character and the issue of unworked shame has to do with places of brokenness and shame in our lives. And all of us can relate to these places of, of embarrassment. It's fun. It's silly. We move on. We repaint our house and, and no one is hurt. We move on to places of guilt and we understand that guilt is about our conscience. Guilt is about right and wrong. Guilt is about making amends. Guilt is about receiving and giving forgiveness. And we can learn to do those things. 
But shame is something that's even deeper. It's that place that feels like I'm never going to be able to do enough to earn some kind of right relationship. It blocks us from being able to connect deeply with one another and ultimately to be able to connect deeply with God. Shame is being emotionally exposed when we least want to be exposed. It's trying to measure up to some unreachable standard that's being imposed upon us by others. It's not being good enough, competent enough, or valued enough in somebody's eyes that you long to be valued in. Shame is so powerful because it's tied to how other people perceive us and ultimately to how we perceive ourselves. Shame is so personal and so powerful that it blocks our ability to connect with God and others deeply. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a client that I worked with a number of years ago, and I'm going to call him George. George came into my office, and, and if you had been there in some regard and seen George, you would wonder why he was coming into my office, because he looked great on the outside. He, he drove the right car when he pulled up to the office, and he's dressed in designer clothes, and he's, he's wearing all the right stuff, and he's casual and engaged, and he's got a smile on the outside, and and uh, he's got the right job. He lives in the right suburb. He's got a, a beautiful wife, 2.2 kids, and a cat and a dog, and white picket fences. And it's just, it's a perfect picture. And if you'd seen that, and if you were sitting there with George, you'd wonder why he was coming into a counseling office. It wouldn't make any sense. And yet, not very many people come into my office to tell me about how great their life is in counseling. So within a few weeks... George started opening up a little bit about, yes, on the outside, everything looked fantastic, and he knew how to live that life and to see and project a certain picture out there. But on the inside, when he started peeling back the layers, um, the inside couldn't have not matched the outside anymore. It was such a different picture. He talked about his past and abuses and traumas and decisions that he had made and things that had happened to him and how ugly and how less than and unfit he felt on the inside. And he told me this story that I'll probably never forget. Uh, and this was kind of the, the, the ultimate illustration of the way he felt on the inside. He said, you know, every night my wife and I put our two little girls to bed and we tuck them in and we, you know, give them a kiss and, and tell them we love them. And we do, you know, read a bedtime story, that classic kind of put your kids to bed kind of thing. And and then we go back and we'll watch a TV show or do something, mom and I, and finish up. And then about an hour later, we'll go to bed for the evening. And he says, you know, I, I never really, you know, even my wife doesn't know that I do this, but he said, I, I'll sneak into their bedroom and I'll just give them a little kiss on the forehead and just, you know, kind of whisper in their ear to tell them good night. But he says, every night when I go in to do that, I whisper into the ears of my little girls, honey, I pray that when you grow up, you meet and marry someone that's not like me. It was the saddest thing I'd ever heard. And he said that the stuff on the inside, the way he saw himself in relationship with others and ultimately in relationship with God, he literally prayed that his daughters would meet and marry someone that was so different than the person that he believed that he was on the inside. In the last month, I was sitting with another couple and I had shared this story in another church in another environment in the last month. And a man said in my office in the last month, and he said, when you told that story, 
It was, it was as if you had been in our house because I do the same thing. I long and wish that my kids will be so better and different and I long and pray for them to be able to meet somebody that's who I want them to be able to have a relationship with. But the way I see myself is so different than that picture. Most people carry shame around with them like a weight on their shoulders. Other people spend their whole lives trying to outrun their past, hoping it never catches up with them. There's a song called Easier to Run that you might know from a few years back. Something's been taken from deep inside of me, a secret I've kept locked away no one can ever see. Wounds so deep they never show, they never go away. Like moving pictures in my head. For years and years they played. If I could change, I would. Take back the pain, I would. Retrace every wrong move that I've made, I would. If I could stand up and take the blame, I would. If I could take all the shame to my grave, I would. Sometimes I remember the darkness of my past, bringing back these memories I wish I didn't have. Sometimes I think of letting go and never looking back and never moving forward so there would never be a past. It's easier to run, replacing this pain with something numb. It's so much easier to go than to face this pain here all alone. If I could change, I would. Take back the pain, I would. Retrace every wrong move that I've made, I would. If I could stand up and take the blame, I would. If I could take all the shame to my grave, I would. I'm here to tell you about hope and grace and to say, first, if you relate to anything we've talked about so far, number one, you don't have to deal with that alone. And you are in a place talking and worshiping a God that wants to meet you here and say, we can do something about it. We can help you move forward and get the release and the love and the acceptance and the grace that you long for to change your life now so that it shows up in every relationship in your life in different ways. You know, we're all a part of three families. Every one of us was raised in a family that was our mom and our dad and whatever we had for siblings, our family of origin. We were all raised in a family that we didn't have much control over. And secondly, we're all a part of a second family called a nuclear family. That's the family you're worshiping with here or that you go home to later today. Or if you're single, it's the people that are in the closest circle in your life that you let into the most personal and private places in life. So you've got a nuclear family or your current family. And then third, you've got your spiritual family, the people that you come here to worship with. But do you realize all three of those families are connected to each other? Because how you were raised in your family of origin and how you treat and are treated in your current relationships and in your nuclear family has a direct impact on how you think, act, and feel in your spiritual family. We take the stuff from our family of origin and our current relationships and we project it onto this place and we project it onto God. We expect him to treat us in the same negative ways that much of our life we've had those kind of experiences from others around us. 
Shame blinds us to the miraculous work of God and it binds us to the meticulous rules of men. And ultimately, shame says that the rules are more important than relationships. And that's a lie. Because our relationship with God is the most important thing we need to attend to today. So quickly, three ways that we try to deal with our sin and shame. So if you're with me at this point and this makes some sense to you and maybe you've had some of this journey or this experience, then you know, you probably tried some of these ways. I've tried some of these ways to deal with it. The first thing we do is we ultimately decide, I want to do it my way. I'll take care of it myself. Surely that'll help me take care of this sin and shame and the struggles that I've got. So I want it my own way. And you might remember Genesis. We're going to pull from some Genesis scriptures to kind of illustrate this and the fall. The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from the tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. And when the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and ate it from Genesis 3, 4, and 6. I want it my own way. We play God in our own lives. And we make our own choices and ultimately that will take us down a path that doesn't serve us. So maybe there's some place in your life today where you're saying, you know what, I've been playing God in my own life. I've been calling the shots. And this is a time to quit doing that and let God step in instead of me wanting my own way and being selfish in that place. Or second, maybe you've hit it, you've covered it up and you've hoped it would go away. That's the second thing we do with it. In my field, we call that denial, okay? We pretend. We act like things are not as bad as they really are, so we hide it. We cover stuff up. We pretend. We smile, and we, we just hope that we'll never have to really deal with it at some point. Look at Genesis 3, 7 to 9. Immediately, the two of them did see what was really going on. They saw themselves naked. They sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. And God called out to the man, where are you? He said, I heard you were in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. We hide, we deny, we pull apart, we detach from the very one, Christ, who wants to come close to us. That's what shame does to us. So, Where are you hiding today? Where are you pretending? Where are you not dealing with some stuff that maybe this is your day to step forward and say it's time to deal with some stuff between me and God? Third, after those two, one other classic way I deal with my own sin and shame is I blame somebody else for it. It wasn't me. I have to be careful with this one. I want you to hear this clear, but... Sometimes we blame our parents, or we blame other people in our life, or we blame people who have hurt us, you know, ex-spouses, bosses, pastors, etc. And I, I want to be clear that there's real damage out there that we have all done. So I'm not saying those are not legitimate, but here's my challenge for you. At some point, we have to step forward and take responsibility for our own feelings and our own actions and how we're going to move forward even when we've had to wrestle with things that have been done to us in the past. 
So at first we blame someone else for it. Look at Genesis 3, 12 and 13. The woman you gave me as a companion, she gave me fruit from the tree and yes, I ate it. God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And she said, the serpent seduced me and I ate it. We shift blame to somebody else in our life so that we won't have to deal with it. So maybe today, There's a place where you're saying, I want to step forward into that space and take some responsibility for something that God's calling me to. So after we do those three things and they don't work, the truth is they work for a season. They work for a little while. They work for a season, but ultimately we get to a spot where we acknowledge and see that they don't work long term. And God's way of handling our sin and shame though, does work long-term. And there are some things that he does and offers to us in regards to being able to bring that healing that we all long for. Grace is God's overwhelming love and acceptance of us, even when, especially when, we feel like we don't deserve it and we acknowledge that there's nothing we can do to gain it. It's a free gift from the God of the universe to you, and to me. So this is what God calls us to do with those places of sin and shame. First, we confess our sin and shame. Genesis 3:21 says God made leather clothing for Adam and his wife and he dressed them. Many theologians believe in this one verse back in Genesis, we see the foreshadowing of Christ shedding his blood for the sins of the world on the cross. And that this sin and shame is covered by putting us in right relationship with Christ by what he does, not by what we do. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Our job is to confess sin. It's God's job to forgive the sin. Secondly, after confessing our sin... We trust God to do what he says he will do. We trust God. Now, people who have been hurt and broken by sin and shame, the hardest thing to tell that person to do is to trust. Because don't you understand? I've been hurt. I've been broken. I've been burned in significant ways. And now you're asking me to take a chance and a risk again. And yet... That's exactly what we need to do after confession is we trust God to do what he says he will do. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us come near to God with a sincere heart and a sure faith because we have been made free from a guilty conscience. You don't become the person God wants you to through shame. You become the person God has called you to be through his grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Are you in a time of need today? If you're not, you will be at some point. And I'm telling you, you can trust God when you're at that spot. Third, we accept God's overwhelming forgiveness and grace. We confess, we trust, and we accept his grace. 
Psalm 32.5 says, I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess them to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt and shame is gone. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Isn't it amazing as we do this process and meet Christ right in that spot? I'm here to tell you as we wrap up this morning that God wants to use the very place of your greatest sin and shame as the cornerstone of his future ministry and impact through you to the world. That makes no sense on paper. That is not a good plan, but I'm telling you, it is so powerful and amazing, and it works, and it's God's plan. When I finished my doctoral dissertation back in 1997, and I wrote it on this topic of shame and grace, and it was very much a personal process for me to do that, to make sense of some stuff in my own life. So I finished that doctoral dissertation, and, and you, you may know this, but when you get done with that, they, they, they bind it, and they, they, they print it, and they put it in a book form, and it looks a little bit like an encyclopedia. Young people, ask your folks what encyclopedias are after the service. They'll explain it to you. So then you print a few encyclopedias and you put one on your shelf and you give one to the library of the university you're at and maybe give one to your folks and it sits on a shelf and pretty much gathers dust because by the time you finish a doctorate, you know a whole lot about a very little small thing and there's not that many other people that really usually care about that same little thing that you've uh, been studying all your life. So that's what I expected to happen. And I need to do this as humbly as I can. And my wife helps me with my humbleness because I need her to do that. But uh, that's what I expected to happen when I got done with my dissertation. And here I am 20, almost 20 years later, standing in front of a group of folks still talking about the topic that was that research process back in 1997 and before. For whatever reason, in his wisdom, God chose to use the very process of my own experience and need to make some sense of healing in my own life to then use it as a whole ministry that continues to touch people's lives. I am so humbled by that and amazed, to be quite honest, that anybody still cares about this topic. But you know what? Every time I have this conversation, you know what I find? It matters. It matters because it touches our heart and I want you to know, if you're here today, and if you're struggling with any place around sin and shame, stuff that you've done, stuff that's been done to you, this is a place of healing and acceptance and God's grace. And all we have to do is come before him right now to be able to confess and trust and, and be able to walk in that overwhelming love, grace, and forgiveness. It's here today. Would you pray with me?